welcome back to the show, WVU Reads, where we are talking with scholars and practitioners and professionals from across campus and off of campus about a whole host of themes that come up while reading Educated, this year's Campus Read. This week, I've invited Derek Krisoff, who is the director of WVU Press, onto the show, which means we'll be talking not about the content of Tara Westover's book, but about the book itself as a material object. We'll talk about how books are made and how they're marketed, and the various kinds of labor that go into any book, most of which is invisible, and and the kinds of value that accrues to a book as the result of that labor being invested in it. We'll talk about different types of presses. What's a trade press that published Tara Westover's book? How is a trade press different than an academic press like WVU Press, which Derek runs? And we'll talk a little bit about Amazon and how Amazon has changed the landscape of uh, authorship and publishing in various ways. So, so yeah, so we're talking this week about the book as an object, a thing in the world with shape, dimension, and weight. Uh, a material object, but also a commodity. I and mean, that's where I wanted to start. I was actually just reading last night an interview with a scholar named Leah Price. Leah Price is a professor of English at Rutgers, and she has a center there called The Initiative for the Book. And we're this fascinating interview with her on a website called Public Books. And one of the things she mentions in the course of that interview, partly as an attempt to demystify some of our ideas about books, is that books were the first objects sold on credit, which is, is pretty fascinating and, and puts them in a sort of trajectory, them at the beginning of a trajectory that doesn't end, but that most recently takes shape in subprime mortgages and the subprime mortgage crisis. So books uh, are very much commodities and have long been commodities. She also talks about how they were among the first products to be barcoded. So they were there at the beginning of electronic inventories. So they've played a prominent role in capitalism and the way that capitalism has shaped our world. If you really want to understand books as as objects and commodities, not just vehicles for a story or opportunities for personal transformation. You know, some, some of the ways in which we've talked about educated. You should work at a bookstore for eight hours a day, shelving books, feeling their weight, and selling them, which is what I did. I moved to New York City right after college, and the first job I got there was at the city's most famous used bookstore, The Strand, which advertises on its bright red awning in white letters, eight miles of books, or it did at that point. That was, oh God, so many years ago. <laughs> I think it probably has, a, has, has, many more, has added many more miles to that. But, but before I worked at The Strand, I went there. Uh, I used to take the train down when I was in college to go to The Strand and, and to other used bookstores, and I made some very important discoveries there including the first book of poetry that I ever bought. And I don't think I've mentioned this on the show before, but I'm a poet. And the first book of poetry that I bought was called Notebook by Robert Lowell. And it was on one of these days when I was just spending probably hours browsing the shelves at the Strand and pulled this book off. I was attracted to its fire engine red cover or binding and, and discovered these poems. So I then got a job at the Strand after I graduated from college, a very low-paying job, but it was enough 
back then to live in New York. The main branch of the Strand is right by Union Square, and they have a satellite branch downtown in Lower Manhattan, which is where I work, near South Street Seaport, a very different part of New York City. This is Bartleby's New York City and P.T. Barnum's New York City. And I stocked books, and then I sold books. I worked at the cash register with a couple of, I remember very clearly, a couple of middle-aged humps dreamed up by Samuel Beckett. One was Irish and one was Jewish, and they were both just the most, just the worst misanthropes you could imagine. I would be sandwiched between the two of them who would make these, just talk endlessly about the customers after they left. And I had some weird experiences there. I sold John McEnroe his own autobiography. I also, there was this it probably still is. I don't know if it gets much use. On Craigslist back then, there was a category called missed connections where people would post about a connection they'd missed. So I saw you on the subway and I wanted to say hi, but I didn't have the courage. So if you're reading this, you were wearing a purple shirt and red suspenders or whatever it might be. And uh, at one point, someone forwarded, I was working at the strand, someone forwarded a misconnection that seemed to be meant for me. It was, um, you know, I, you, you sold me the color purple at the strand on South Street. And you, I think she even mentioned me by name. And, you know, I'd love to get together sometime. So, you know, I, I was, I was interested in, in ad- adventures back then. And I said, sure. And I, I wrote back and we had, we set up this date and I met her at Barnes and Noble, <laughs> actually. And there was the the Barnes and Noble in Union Square had this long kind of entryway with all these tables stacked with books. And of course, I had never we I had never really met this woman. I had no idea what uh, who she was. So I was just walking up and down this entryway, waiting to be noticed by <laughs> her, which she did eventually. Although then the first thing she said was, "I thought you wore glasses." And then we proceeded to have this date at a vegan restaurant. And, but it was never clear whether she had actually meant me when she'd sent that misconnection or if that had, there had been some kind of mistake. So, you know, books can lead to all kinds of strange happenings and occurrences. And that brings me back to Leah Price. And I wanted to just kind of end with this quote from that interview. She says, We are restricting the range of functions that a book can fill when we imagine that its only function is to be a kind of enabler of solitary, individual interiority. As you know, if you've been listening to the show, I completely agree with that. I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Derek Krisoff. Thanks so much, Derek, for coming on the show. Thank you, Jeff, uh, for the opportunity to talk about books and publishing. Yeah, and I've, I've really been looking forward to it. I'm hoping we can talk about publishing and the WVU Press and uh, educated a little bit specifically and, and just kind of generally thinking about books, not just as vehicles for an author's thoughts or a story, but as, as objects and sure. commodities. Uh, but before we get into that, I'm, I'm hoping to hear a little bit about this quartet that <laughs> I read about on, on Twitter the other night. I played a number of instruments poorly in, I guess, middle and high school and, and into college, including bass guitar. And I was part of a, a group with a trio and a quartet, depending on the day. And we played bar mitzvahs and uh, other functions. I guess I was in pit bands once in a while. The, the funny thing was you could actually get paid. I, I managed to get mm-hmm. paid not a lot, but mm-hmm. um, as much as I would have been paid, you know, babysitting or um, 
cleaning up uh, the the rec center or whatever else uh, mm-hmm. the options might have been <laughs> in the late 80s in suburban New York where I grew up. So it was kind of, um, I mean, I won't say it was glamorous, but it was rewarding to get to do uh, music in a way that people appreciated. But, you know, they, they tended to want, the, the kind of functions I was playing, they wanted music that didn't stand out. So uh, so we did kind of mellow mellow jazz. Uh, the, and the other musicians were much better than I was. I mean, again, I was just kind of putting around, and I picked the instrument that I think is probably easiest to get by on it. All right, you can kind of hide behind the bass. Right, you're you're less prominent, Um, and and that takes skill too, and and there are bassists who are not flashy, who are extremely skilled, and and I was not among their ranks, uh, (laughs) and and I'm not now. But you got to kind of, you know, it was, was, you get to plug it in, and and it uh, was kind of exciting that way, and you get to hang out with musicians, and somehow we got, we were, you know, all of... 17 years old and we got hooked up with this guy who must have been considerably older and was and played a role in a congressional campaign uh, and was a guitar player so when, when we were a quartet as opposed to a trio this uh, older guy his name was Riley was uh, the fourth and because he was working on the campaign of a, a local uh, Democrat and this was in an era where the, the part of New York where I lived although it now is where Hillary Clinton lives uh, at the time, it was almost uh, entirely Republican, uh, and this was 1988, and the Democratic challenger won the election, in part based on my bass playing, <laughs> uh, and she's still there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the way of, I mean, she unseated somebody who'd had that seat for uh, 75 years, and she's now uh, 75 years-ish into her tenure, a it, woman named Nita Lowy. It, it was the steady hand of your bass playing that, <laughs> that gave voters the confidence that she too and, would have a steady hand uh, sure. in the I, legislature. You're, you're, the, um, you're, you're the, the scholar. I'll, I'll leave it to you to interpret um, what the state of affairs... I think at the very least, I, did, I didn't drive anybody away, uh-huh. or I didn't drive away enough people that she lost that election. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting to me... This is probably well beyond the boundaries of the conversation we're supposed to be having, but that part of the world uh, was was really synonymous with with the Republican Party for a long mm. time in the suburbs, and it's where people who were you know steady habits and all that and got mm-hmm. on the train and went into the city and did business and and all that. How that went from being kind of emblematic of kind of whatever this means mainstream conservatism and is now kind of emblematic of mainstream liberalism. Uh, it, it, to the point again, where it, it's where Hillary Clinton lives, not the same town, but the same district. Right, which which might say as much about the political parties as it does about the the people who live there. His views maybe haven't shifted at all. It's just that the parties have shifted to accommodate them. Something has certainly happened in, in politics in my lifetime. Yes, <laughs> and uh, and I was there for a small part of it uh, mm-hmm. for whatever that that change was. Um, and I think something is well, get even further afield. Something is happening now. Uh, in in the primary, and probably happened four years ago in the primary, where th- there may be another shift uh, beginning, and um, I'm I'm no longer uh, party to that as a musician. Right, right. In but some small way, perhaps I am party to it as a publisher. As a publisher, yeah. So uh, was it a seamless transition from <laughs> from bassist of a band to director of an academic press? Uh, much like a band where all parts are equally known. There's really no, there's no <laughs> metaphor there. Um, no, I went to grad school, and mm-hmm. uh, like, like a lot of people in publishing, I'm sort of a failed academic, uh, was, was getting a, a PhD in history, 
and doing dissertation research. Um, did not finish my dissertation, but because you know historians have to do archival work, so they often travel once they're at the dissertation stage. And um, I traveled to New York City, uh, which is you know near where I'm from, but it was not where I was going to school. But my the archives that I needed were there. So in the mid '90s, uh, I pretty much moved down there to be close to the the research that I needed to do, uh, and that was a, a good time, really, not to be a grad student. I think because it was it was kind of a go go era, and mm-hmm. people were having a good time. I was living in Brooklyn, uh, and there were a lot of incentives to do other things to leave academia, which you know was not as bad then as it. As it is now, I think. But even in even, terms of finding a job, well, right, exactly. Even even twenty five years ago, it was um, there was no guarantee at all that you were going to get a tenure track job uh, if you finished your your PhD. So um, from a from a strictly cost benefit perspective, uh, there was plenty of reason not to continue to spend time getting that degree. And then also there were these kind of pull factors towards other sorts of work. Uh, because although you know the '90s were far from perfect, it was a it was a pretty healthy economy, mm-hmm. and uh, and folks uh, were having a good time in places like uh, the big city where I was then living. So I applied for a couple of jobs in publishing, just entry level um, editorial jobs, uh, and there too, you know, coming out of academe, I was accustomed to the idea that you had to sort of carpet bomb with resumes, CVs. If he wanted to, you know, even get a phone interview. So I thought I'd apply for two jobs. What are the odds? Um, but I got asked to interview at both places um, and ended up starting as an editorial assistant at a commercial scholarly, so a for-profit, not a university mm-hmm. press, but a for-profit uh, scholarly publisher called Routledge, uh, uh-huh. sometimes pronounced Routledge, I guess, in New York. Um, very soon after that, that's the other thing. Things just move much faster yeah. in the for-profit world than they do in universities. So I wasn't, I, I don't know that I'd fully reckoned with the fact that, you know, two weeks after applying, I might be uh, <laughs> starting a job. Um, but but it seems to have worked out. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. that was 21 and a half years ago, uh, and I'm still doing it and still enjoying it. Um, so it was... Uh, I think it was a good decision, and again, one that, that lots of other folks have, have, have done. And one thing I'd like to say for, for, for our listeners is that if there are people uh, in your audience, people at WU, I guess especially, who are considering getting started in publishing, well, we happen to be hiring right now. I, when this airs, we may no longer be. We're in the midst of a search right now. But more generally, I would be happy to be a resource to um, talk with folks about what looking for a job in publishing is like and what sorts of um, skills they may want to emphasize and how they can kind of position themselves for that kind of work. I think one of the things about having a press at a university is not just to have the publisher, although that's important, uh, not just specifically to publish the books that we publish, although that's obviously job one, but to have a kind of a resource to talk about publishing mm. with um, with would-be authors, even if they don't end up publishing with us, yeah. with uh, would-be publishers, even if they don't end up working with us. You know, we, my colleagues and I um, have, have worked other places and been other places and, and know our industry a little bit and would be... Uh, excited to share that modest expertise with anybody who's interested. So um, go to wvpress.com. Go there anyway, but um, go and, and look up the staff list and find my email and, and drop me a line. And uh, if you're if you're local, we grab coffee or something. And I would be happy to talk about finding one's way in scholarly publishing. Well, I think that would be a great opportunity then, just uh, for people who aren't very familiar with the publishing world. 
and I think this would in- include would-be authors and readers. A few different types of uh, presses have already come up. You mentioned Rutledge, a, a for-profit scholarly press. I assume WVU is a non-profit scholarly press. Educated, educated is uh, published by a, a trade press. So would you mind just kind of te- telling us the differences between the different types of uh, publishers? Sure. Um, and maybe maybe Random House versus West Virginia is, is the most telling since they're sort of furthest apart in certain respects on the spectrum. Um, but I'll start out by saying what we have in common. And so Random House is, is one of the big five. Uh, there are five enormous uh, for-profit multinational publishers that uh, do most of the publishing that that you probably see uh, and they you know they have imprints and um, they uh, are part of even bigger companies in many cases and um, you know they just they just have enormous resources and, and tons of staff and, uh, and and all that stuff and and they you know they have shareholders and they they need to make money to uh, to return profit to uh, their shareholders. Um, We are not-for-profit, and we're public. So we're part of West Virginia University. Uh, And because West Virginia University is public, we're public too. Uh, We're part of the state of West Virginia. We serve the state of West Virginia. We serve um, West Virginians. We serve the university. Um, But we do publish books the same way that Random House does. Uh, we, we convince authors to sign with us, and we edit and design and market and sell their books. We sell them the same place, places that Random House sells them. Um, they look, I think, for the most part, largely like Random House books. Um, the differences are, again, we're not, um, you know, some of our books make money. Some of them lose money. Uh, we, we try not to lose too much money. Uh, but when we do, when we have a success, the idea is not to, to, to pay dividends to stockholders. The idea is to plow the money that we do make back into making more and better books. Hmm. We're not for profit, and that's how we work. We are not guided entirely or even really primarily by the profit motive. Uh, and that means we can be a little bit freer in terms of our decisions about what to publish. Um, part of the reason to have university presses is there are books that may not look attractive to commercial houses because they don't seem like they're going to sell a lot of copies. Uh, but they're important to have, either because they're written by scholars who are contributing to knowledge, or and these are overlapping categories, or maybe they're about a part of the world that doesn't seem like it's going to be interesting to the big houses in New York and London and the Bay Area, but university presses, because they're spread out across the country and across the world, um, may, may be attuned to markets and kind of sensibilities in smaller, um, less trafficked places that still deserve books. Because um, there, there is something provincial about uh, New York literary culture, in a way, that it, it is sort of New York-centric, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, and and educated is an interesting case because it's it's set in Idaho, obviously, and, and we can we can kind of drill down on educated um, if you'd like, uh, but but certainly it's not as though the, the big houses in New York only publish um, New Yorkers, uh, but but I do think um, there are things about our situatedness, you know, where we are, that mean that we make different decisions about what to publish. And we probably publish them a little bit differently when we do publish them. And, and some of that is obviously publishing about our region. 
But even beyond that, even when at West Virginia we're not publishing books about Appalachia, uh, I think if you look at our higher ed list, for example, we do a lot of books about teaching and learning at the college level. I think our books um, have a sort of political orientation and a kind of, um, I don't know, scrappiness. I, I, mm-hmm. I respond to scrappiness. Hopefully that doesn't scan the wrong way to our listeners. Uh, that a book from HarperCollins or even, you know, Oxford University Press um, wouldn't. So I, I think there, there are just ways in which spreading out publishing around the continent and, and indeed around the world is valuable. Uh, and a place like West Virginia probably wouldn't have a book publisher of any size or stature, mm-hmm. uh, if not for its university press, which which re- which receives some support from the university, and that's part of how we're able to be um, oriented around things besides simply the profit motive. Is we have a little bit of, of cushion thanks to being part of a, a public university. Another um, before I lose track of it, another point that I want to make about what distinguishes university presses from commercial houses is peer review and board approval. Uh, So everything that we publish goes to peer review, which just means that two, in our case, two experts um, read the full manuscript, at least two, and provide reports on it and give input to the authors who kind of take that into account as they revise. And then the reports and uh, plans for revision and so forth are shared with the press's editorial board which is made up of faculty at the university. So we have, uh, you know, usually between 10 and 12 uh, professors at WVU who are on our board and they approve everything we publish after it's been to peer review. Uh, and that is not the case at, at scholarly publishers. Uh, although interestingly, again, in the case you of mean educated, at, at trade, I'm sorry, at trade publishers. Yeah. Um, in the case of educated. Uh, I believe it was fact-checked, which is a little bit different, which is kind of a cousin to, um, to peer review. Um, so it's not as though, you know, the commercial houses are just putting out anything. I mean, clearly they've got people who are scrutinizing the work. Uh, but peer review as a specific institution is, uh, is something that, that only, really only scholarly publishers and university presses do. Part of the reason to have that board uh, is that these books go out with West Virginia University's name on the spine. Um, and the university wants to be assured that the stuff that's going out there and kind of representing WVU to the world is, uh, you know, uh, compatible with our, our vision of, of ourselves and, and the kind of standards that a major research university has. Um, and I think to flip that around, that's, that's a big part of the, the kind of value proposition to a university for having a press. Um, we, I should clarify this because people don't always know. We don't only publish WVU faculty. Uh, and in fact, the majority of what we publish is, is not by WVU faculty, although we certainly publish some WVU faculty. But we publish in areas um, where the university is strong. And we try to, and I think at WVU have been successful in, propel outward the reputation of the university. So when you do see WVU on the spine uh, and you're in a bookstore in New York or Los Angeles or Chicago or, or wherever, you know, that's, that's an encounter with the name and reputation of the university in a culturally dense place, you know, because it might be between a book from Random House and a book from Oxford University Press. Um, that says something about what our peer group is as a university, right, when you see that at the bookstore. Or when you see a book review, uh, in a place like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or um, 
Harper's of the Atlantic, which are all places that WVU Press Books have recently received attention, that too is kind of putting the university's name and, and reputation into circulation in ways that I think books can do and, and often are, are difficult to do otherwise. I mean, there are only so many ways you're going to see the words West Virginia University in that order out in the world. And clearly, mm-hmm. you know, the wonderful researchers here are getting their work out and it's getting noticed. I don't, I don't want to, you know, reduce things to just the press. But, you know, you open the New York Review of Books or whatever and, and see WVU via its press. And I think that's really important kind of um, reputational work that we're doing on behalf of the university. That, well, to come back to your initial question, that's why the board approval part of it is so important. Mm-hmm. And it's different from how Random House views its mission and, and motives and all that. Well, and it, it's a testament to the quality of the books that you're publishing. Also, and I, one of the things that I think is so cool about the press is it, it does seem like you are willing to take risks on books. If not for university presses that are willing to take those chances, um, that see it as part of their mission to do things that may be a little bit riskier, um, but that, that sometimes do pay off. And that's the other thing that I think I'd want to emphasize here, is that university press sales are up. Um, the last I checked, anyway, sales for the industry overall were up about 5% over the previous year. Um, and at WVU, we were fortunate to have been on a, on a really good run lately, and, and they're up significantly more than that. Um, so while, you know, university presses, like universities in general, certainly deal with an awful lot of challenges, uh, I think we're doing well in finding new audiences, doing new sorts of books that don't kind of water down the, the reputation of the overall list, um, doing books that get noticed in different sorts of places that do get into bookstores and get reviewed and all that, uh, and doing books that uh, that are selling pretty well. And, and, and I'm going to guess not as well as educated, but better than you might expect and well enough to support the sorts of investments uh, like flaps or like using a publicist to help get your book mm-hmm. in the New York Times that, uh, that seem to kind of create a, a virtuous feedback loop of continued sustainable growth. So what are some books on the horizon that we, we could look forward to reading? Um, so we have a catalog that's at the printer right now, and we have a billboard um, that's going to the billboard company uh, today. When, when you called, I was uh, looking at the billboard PDF for the very last time before it goes off to be uh, made into vinyl, at which point, you know, any any mistake would be uncorrectable mm-hmm. and, and blaring at our community for a month. Um, so thinking about sort of what's what's in the catalog and what's on the billboard, because those are books that are coming out in the next six months or so. We have a book, so this is by a WV faculty member, um, and it is about West Virginia, but I think it, it does... It does the sort of work thinking about West Virginia and Appalachia critically and connecting it to some broader themes of potential global interest that, that is what we try to do. So that we're not doing kind of, um, you know, books of, 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 uh, of strictly uh, antiquarian interest, but books that do sort of um, connect up with, with broader um, concerns. So anyway, the book is about the uh, sort of the idea of the mountaineer, the icon of the mountaineer. And the author is Rosemary Hathaway who's in the English department at WVU and is a folklorist uh, and has kind of personal connections to the Mountaineer because her parents went to this university back in the uh, the immediate post-World War II era uh, and has done interviews with various people who have um, performed the Mountaineer role 
at WVU, including the two women who've done it, uh, but also looks at archival things and sort of, you know, going back even before West Virginia was founded, um, sort of the, the, the backwoodsmen and, and what that meant culturally to people in Western Virginia and eventually West Virginia and also around the world and how mass media and Davy Crockett and all that sees hmm. upon these figures and what they mean. And, and her insight is kind of the, there's this struggle over the meaning of the mountaineer where it can be, it can be noble. He, and it's usually almost always a male, and it's controversial when it's not a male, mm. which is itself telling. But he can be this noble kind of frontiersman figure, uh, but he can also be this kind of rabble-rousing trickster figure um, who's kind of um, anti-authoritarian um, and and a kind of a bottom-up, against-the-hierarchy kind of figure. And the different groups will seize upon one interpretation or another of the Mountaineer in order to advance their interests. And they're, you know, at WVU, you see this in um, the Respectful Mountaineer campaign and things like that that are meant to sort of curb the um, the perceived excesses of the rabble-rousing Mountaineer, right? Now, what, but, what, what was the Respectful Mountaineer campaign? So Respectful Mountaineer campaign, I, I believe, is ongoing, but it was a response specifically, I think, to the 2014 WVU-Baylor game in which uh, WVU was a surprise victor, and there was, you know, it happens periodically, and Rosemary shows, the author shows, has been happening for a gazillion years um, around football and other things, uh, including Mountaineer Week itself, which is kind of institutionalized over the course of the history of WVU. Um, but there was couch burning, and there was, um, you know, there were these mini kind of uh, riots, uh, which is loaded language, and she talks mm-hmm. about that. Uh, and And people were concerned, and this counter-tendency is coming up throughout the history of West Virginia as well, and try to sort of tamp it down and say that's not how a mountaineer acts. The, the respectful mountaineer is about um, is about that. It's about respect, and is, is this more noble tradition of, um, you know, almost a civilizing figure. And again, loaded language, and she unpacks that. Um, but she also looks at... Uh, you know, more recent attempts to sort of to, to say that mountaineers don't have to be men, which I think most of us would would agree with, uh, or certainly would would be um, would be concerned if there were masculinist mobilizations of the mountaineer idea to say that a woman can't be a mountaineer, or maybe you know that an African American can't be a mountaineer, can't be the the the, the logo, the icon. Um, so the university is sort of taking the body out of the mountaineer. If you look at branding and advertising around the university lately, there's rarely a mountaineer figure. It's more sort of a, a sylvan setting as seen mm. by a mountaineer, but it's a disembodied mountaineer. So that mountaineer could be, um, could be a, 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 an international student from the Middle East, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's an absolutely um, uh, worthy goal to pursue but it is it, it swims upstream when it comes to deep-seated cultural tendencies with a long tradition in Appalachia. And it's looking at that kind of set of struggles that's at the center of this book. It's really smart. Um, the author uses first person a lot. She's come back to educate it. I mean, she's, she's present in the book. It's not memoir. But um, part of what I think will help it cross over to less specialized audiences is that Rosemary is a participant in the story. Um, and and it's, uh, it's, I think, relatable 
for that reason, even though it marries that relatability to a deep scholarly apparatus and notes and archival work and having read all the secondary sources. That's, I think, what university presses can do especially well um, these days in particular and what we try to do with uh, with our general interest titles. Um, so that's one. Uh, we can we can talk about others. Or, or well, pivot, actually, or... what I was hoping is, since we're talking about Rosemary's book about the mountaineer, and that is all. All when when will that be published? Uh, that'll come in late winter, early spring. So look for so, so relatively soon. Yeah, because I'm so curious about you know how books become books. What happens between when an author submits a manuscript and uh, the book appears on Amazon? Uh, or, or preferably in an independent bookstore <laughs> or something. <laughs> it can do both. Uh, we, we, we try to get them in both places. I know it's it's interesting uh, how Amazon. I was I was sort of thinking about this last week, last night with my own book. Um, how Amazon has become the conferrer of legitimacy. You know, when my book came out, um, it was you know it gave me a little thrill to say that it was on Amazon. Sure. Or people would often ask, oh. Oh, you know. Oh, you wrote a book of poetry. Could I get it on Amazon? And that, you know, that they they wanted proof, you know, right. that I That's hadn't just become real. I, I wasn't Emily Dickinson, you know, right. sewing books together in my bedroom. You know, that I was a legitimate Amazon poet. Is an interesting thing. I mean, there's so much written about Amazon, and and people will not be surprised if they know me at all, or even probably have listened to the, the half hour of this conversation so far, that. Politically, my feelings about Amazon are pretty predictable, uh, and I won't spell out all the concerns, in part because Amazon is probably listening um, <laughs> about you know uh, the, the labor practices and surveillance capitalism and uh, you know monopoly power and all that. Um, I think though it's a, it's 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 more mixed than it's sometimes depicted. I was talking to an independent bookseller recently. Uh, and he made the point that, you know, a lot of places aren't served by independent bookstores, uh, mm-hmm. certainly in West Virginia, although we have two or three, certainly two great ones, um, none in Morgantown, despite it being one of the largest cities in the state and, you know, where the big university is. Uh, and then obviously there, there are rural parts of West Virginia that are nowhere near a, a, an independent bookstore. So, so Amazon is bringing a ton of books to a ton of people. Who wouldn't otherwise have access to them? Um, so it's you know it's 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 a mixed story. Um, well, and they they also do some interesting work with self publishing. So there's a way sure. in which Amazon is sort of um, scrambling some of the processes by which authors could make their way to publication. Uh, a- absolutely true, and you know we, certainly there are things that we see here that aren't appropriate for us, where it seems like. Uh, I think it's not even called CreateSpace anymore, but whatever the self-publishing option is on Amazon is uh, is is a, a viable way for them to go, and, and I don't um, hesitate to recommend that to folks. I mean, one thing about Amazon from a publisher's perspective, and this is maybe more original than, than the usual litany of, of complaints about Amazon, is that it, it takes a lot of work. Um, I mean, just just human labor to get the relationship with Amazon running smoothly. Hmm. And I don't think most people realize that. I mean, Amazon kind of, from from a consumer's perspective, thrives on um, seamlessness, the perception of seamlessness and frictionlessness. That, um, you know, it's all one click, and, and people imagine that being so dialed in, they've got, you know, drones delivering books and all this. Um, but when it comes to just really basic stuff, like making sure our books are up on Amazon, and that there's not, um, you know, we use the, the term metadata, sort of the, 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 the data about the books that goes out 
to Amazon and other places. If there's no distortion in that, or that, you know, if we know a book is in stock, but Amazon's saying they don't have it and it's going to take six months for them to get it or whatever, there's just a lot of, um, and this is not a criticism of Amazon exactly, but there's just a lot of glitchiness and an awful lot of time, human time, that goes into making sure those glitches go away as quickly as possible. Uh, that I think is erased from the way we think about the digital and about technology mm-hmm. and about these big companies that are supposed to be so efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one of the first things I do when I wake up in the morning is check our recent books at WVU Press to make sure that they're showing up correctly on Amazon. Uh, and troubleshooting that stuff, although, you know, Amazon is, is certainly helpful and it's, it's to their benefit to, to have the stuff show up accurately too. Troubleshooting it just feels like navigating the healthcare bureaucracy or something. Mm-hmm. It, it's a lot of um, of just back and forth and sort of mutual incomprehension and bureaucracy and uh, and all that. So um, obviously this is even more, the human element be, behind the, the apparently seamless Amazon story is even more pronounced when you think about people working in warehouses and that kind of thing. And I don't want to, I don't want to equate <laughs> The, the human labor that goes into it on the publisher side with, with that end of things. But it is all part of the same story, I think, where um, the things that seem so smooth actually rely on, um, you know, have environmental consequences, have labor consequences. And I think sometimes there's a general tendency, putting Amazon aside, to, um, to imagine publishing as having become less important in this new era when you can theoretically sell stuff yourself and put it online yourself and all this, uh, even just managing, never mind copy editing and cover design and all the kind of more visible, tangible manifestations of labor that go into publishing, even things like troubleshooting the relations with online vendors, entering the metadata in the first place are very labor intensive and are part of why... Um, Part of why we need publishers, part of why paying for books is important so we can pay for the labor that goes into publishing, uh, and so on. It's interesting because when I think about my own relationship to books, because I'm, I'm hearing you describe just how much, t- how how many people's time and energy is invested right. in producing any book that's out in the world. And I'm always sort of uh, uh, oscillating, you know, between feeling like books should be treated that way, you know, as as things that that have all of this time and energy contained in them, not just the sweat and blood and tears of the author that right. went into producing it, uh, you know, writing it, but also um, everybody else who's been involved in turning it into an object that has a life in the world, um, and is and uh, feeling that way about books, and then feeling like no, they need to be. That's way too precious. and books are meant to be kind of read and then cast aside yeah i mean i've i've recycled books i mean we you've thrown out books uh well not not into landfill but recycled them um i mean publishers pulp books and this is part of to go back to not having to do big runs initially anymore Mm. except when you have flaps um that's part of why we do that. We don't want to have to pulp books. Mm-hmm. But I think, I mean, I, I, I'm with you 100% on the preciousness that can creep into the way we talk about books. Uh, and it can be corny. And, and I, I think that I don't like corny. And, and sometimes I, I bristle a little bit. Uh, but I think it's part of the way that people are protecting books and reading and publishing and book selling and book reviewing 
and the whole um, the whole system. Yeah, is that we if we don't see it as disposable, then it won't go the way of every other you know yeah manifestation of media under the sun. It won't go the way of magazines. It won't go the way of music. Uh, it won't go, you know, where, where it's kind of a surveillance capitalism model, and and uh, you know nobody's getting, nobody, including the producers, you know, the, the authors or uh, musicians or whoever gets paid. Uh, and sure, there's no gatekeeper, but it's just kind of hell on earth for so many people. <laughs> I think yeah. you know the fact that publishing has not really has resisted going that route to um, to an extent that doesn't surprise me that much, but would surprise the people who, when I was starting out in the late 90s during the dot-com boom, you know, we're absolutely saying it's going to be all mm-hmm. online five years from mm-hmm. now, and it's going to be all subscription, and it's going to be a, a sharing economy, um, you know, and, and even more recently, we're going to bring Uber and Airbnb to books, Netflix to books. It's not gone that way, and I think it's because we are protecting our investment in this stuff, and that can that can scan as as a little bit goofy, but I think it's probably a a necessary kind of byproduct of our investment in protecting books as we know them. And I think it's important to remember when we, when we look at at the price tag on a book, that there's a reason books are priced like they are. Right. Um, Although books have not gone up in price hmm. um, is, is a, I believe I saw that recently and certainly it seems that way to me um, that they're not, they don't seem to be indexed to uh, inflation. Uh, but for the most part, uh, the, the sticker price on a book is the same for that kind of book as it was 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, 20 maybe a lot, but 10 years ago. And in part, I think that's because of the efficiencies in printing. You know, that we're not having to factor in uh, pulping uh, uh, mm. however many books. Yeah. Uh, that we are really working to, to keep the experience, um, to keep the experience of familiar ones that, that readers like but also to economize so that the extravagances of, of past publishing regimes are not reflected in the sticker price. I'm just re- just remembering this because we're thinking about books as objects and even as, you know, there's a history of books as, as sacred objects when you sure. think about the Torah or something like that. But I'm, I'm remembering this visiting my wife's aunt in Philadelphia and she has a little shop and she sells all kinds of things like typewriters and antiques and secondhand books, which he puts out on the on the sidewalk, you know, and, and I love that. <laughs> that anywhere I, where I see that, you know, books for sale on the sidewalk. And she she picked me up from the bus stop, and it started raining, and she realized that she'd left the books out. And by the time we got back to her shop, they were soaked. I mean, right. they were ruined. Right. Probably a hundred books. Right. And the garbage man happened to be. <laughs> Out, you know, happened to be doing his rounds in the neighborhood just as we got back. So we were just dumping these books into the back of a garbage truck, and it felt so bad. <laughs> you know, like that just felt wrong. I mean, I think, I think our feelings about environment and waste are tied up with our thinking about books sometimes. Hmm. And I think people who who predicted, for example, that books would go entirely online. Or that books would go the open access route so that they were free. I mean, they're not really free. Somebody's paying for them, but the, the consumer, the, the end user would not be paying for them. Um, and that it would all kind of go uh, cloudward. Um, we're responding in part to our feelings about um, pulping books. 
and and tearing the jackets or the, the front covers off mass market paperbacks and um you know libraries ha- having to purge their collections of books that haven't circulated in however many years i think there's a lot of anxiety in the united states about um about waste that gets uh kind of pushed into our conversations about about books and publishing and, mm. and I, I understand that but i think sometimes it pings around in ways that end up devaluing books yeah. and to go back to the previous part of the conversation devaluing the labor that goes into them yeah you mean because they'll that that argument could be used to to say that well we shouldn't be publishing books because uh yeah, and that there's just kind of around the corner there's some some pristine new order that that's waiting for us, mm. which will be you know some of the same language I used to talk about Amazon. It'll be frictionless and it'll be seamless. It'll be waste free. Everybody gets exactly what they want, and um, you know there's no there's none of the messiness in it. But the messiness is is what makes books. I mean you know wanting a frictionless um, world of books and publishing and reading uh, makes sense at one level. Uh, it's again, it's 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 a utopian impulse that drives our thinking about a lot of things, but I think it's the it's the kind of jagged human part of it that makes books interesting, and you know they may seem like um, like inefficiencies to people who are futurists and dreaming up this new thing that they say is going to be so much better, and that plays on our deep seated anxieties about things like throwing out books. Um, but the, the, the stickiness of that human component is, is sticky for a reason. That, um, selecting what to publish, selecting what to sell, selecting what to review, um, all those kind of little, um, obstacles along the way are actually what make the system as, uh, as, uh, intoxicating as it is. Yeah. Well, I'm curious now then, uh, are there books in your life that, that, that their value has kind of exceeded their uh, sticker price? You know, books that matter to you beyond, you know, because of what, what's in them, but also have, have sort of become totemic objects in, in some way? Um, that's a great question. Um, not the kind of question that the grubby publishers tend to think about that much, I don't think. <laughs> um, we're looking at... You know, I'm hearing often. grubby, scrappy... Uh, <laughs> Craft. If you want to put, put a more positive spin right. on it, it's all very small batch and it's craft. Yeah. I had somebody, um, I'm not trying to evade your question. I had somebody, a colleague at another university press, um, who's not from West Virginia, but her husband's from West Virginia. And she said when they get the WVU press catalog, they sit down together uh, in the evening and open craft beers and drink their craft beer while they read the catalog. That's and, great. And to me, you know, it, when you're doing this kind of thing, you're putting stuff out in the world and making it public. It, it helps to kind of imagine mm-hmm. who your audience is, who your, your readers are. Uh, so I picture that couple, you know, in their flannel or whatever. Um, and again, they're not even they're not even here, but they have yeah. an kind of imagined relationship to West Virginia, and they get, you know, I think our catalog is attractive and it's kind of a, has a tactile quality. And and whether they're buying the books or not, they kind of have this relationship with this entity, which is us. Um, so yes, yeah, so so forget scrappy and um, gr- grubby, ink stained. Uh, let's let's go with <laughs> with small batch craft. Um, you know what? Obviously, there are books that I give away a lot and have to mm-hmm. buy again so that I have a copy or so I can give it away again. And, mm-hmm. and that's, um, you know, when you talk about the, the value exceeding the sticker price, that would be one 
example, and there are probably books I've given away more than others. There are books um, from my grad school days that I still have that I've been staring at, at least in my peripheral vision for 30 years, that have a... Um, you know, certainly connect me to a previous version of myself and, and maybe also indicate a certain through line because I was reading those books and now I'm making books somewhat like those books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my, my, at a deeper level, my first instinct when you ask that question is to imagine the, the, the to conjure the bookshelves, uh, in my parents' house when I was growing up. And, uh, for whatever reason, it was an old cloth edition, uh, jacketed cloth of Don DeLillo's novel End Zone. Uh, and I can see the spine of it in my mind so clearly. Uh, and it was, a, you know, kind of 70s vintage when I think a lot of thought went into how books looked. Uh, and I didn't, you know, I was too young to read it or understand it or, you know, know that it wasn't really about football. Uh, but it had a sort of, it, it lorded over that room and me when I was in it, and kind of, um, I think, sent some sort of signal about books uh, as as physical objects and the sort of um, energy that they contain and convey. Yeah, well, that's a lovely story. I'm, I'm guessing. Thank you. I'm guessing a lot of people have a book like that, and it's you know, it's not necessarily a good kind of effective response either. It was, it was a creepy thing, <laughs> um, but that's that's often for me anyway. That's kind of what what sticks uh-huh it had power right yeah um okay well I, I think we better end there but uh that was a really nice conversation derek no i enjoyed it thank you for um thank you for the questions both you know more expected and totally unexpected yeah, um, yeah. that have sent me back to my living room in, in 1977 or whatever this podcast is a joint production of the wvu humanities center and the da and produced by Nick Kratzis and Savan Hunter. Copyright 2019.